to the Mad Max Minute and climb aboard for Mad Max Fury Road one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 53, which begins with the bullet farmer making his way through the impeded war party, and it ends with a Morton Joe putting his monster truck to good use. Joining us once again to pull the strings from behind the scenes from the Cabin Minute cast, it's Molly Balin. Hey, guys. So we kick off Wednesday with Furiosa loading the shotgun if there's one major downside to shotguns it's how much time they take to load because you got to push each shell in one at a time but eventually that shotgun is going to do some real damage at some point i'm sure yeah i mean it is a little bit time consuming to load the thing but yeah that's pretty devastating at short range thankfully we cut away from that so we don't have to sit there and watch do that we need to check in (laughs) with the war party and see all of those people that weren't buried by the initial falling of rocks. So obviously the bullet farmer was at the back end of the party that was rolling through. He wasn't Mm going to take point in the front, obviously. I would like to know how he was able to make his way to the front. We get an overview of this train of cars that are all just jammed in there. Barely enough room for their inhabitants to jump out and start running to the front. Mm Mm-hmm. So if they all stopped in an emergency sort of way, rather than being able to stop in a planned sort of way, how the heck did he make his way to the front? I think the bullet farmer and the people eater, by extension, are a lot further back in the line than we actually see. Because Mm. there is that sweeping shot around 10 seconds in that shows this long line of vehicles. And I mean, the doof wagon is way the heck up there. You can see the abandoned Giga Horse a little bit further back, like in the bottom corner as we start this shot. But the People Eater's limousine, which is, I think we've mentioned before, pretty much a rolling refinery, is probably much further back. I mean, granted, the Gastown Boys and the Bullet Farmer folks, they needed to come from those other places. And so it might be just a traffic on the highway situation where... It's not quite as congested. Like, yes, everybody has come to a stop, but there's just enough room for the bullet farmer to weasel his way in there. I love his headdress, man. It totally reminds me of a medieval knight. It reminds me of a British judge's wig. Yes. (laughs) Slightly different association. (laughs) (laughs) There's something about it. You, uh call it a knight's outfit like Um, a cowl yeah like a cowl yeah it's like a chain mail it reminds me of in okay indiana jones and the last crusade uh, yeah the last crusade the knight that is in the cup room yes Mm -hmm. reminds me of him oh yeah totally yeah absolutely legit i just love how the bullet farmer his design aesthetic is pretty much bullets yeah (laughs) (laughs) like (laughs) His wrists are covered in bullets. His headdress is covered in bullets. He's got bullets wrapped around his knees. His jacket is lined with bullets. We're going to see later on, once we get into the nighttime scene, that even 
His teeth are bullets. He's just this guy. His entire aesthetic is bullet themed. And it's crazy. Do you think they're actual bullets or do you think they're bullet casings? Oh, I think Mm. these are live rounds of ammunition that he has just sewn together in such a way that he can add them to his clothing. It's going to weigh so much. Well, there's a reason he's got this big old fancy chair sitting on top of his vehicle. Because he's stuck there forever. (laughs) He's not going to be standing up and running around anytime soon. Certainly not. Yeah, I guess he doesn't run for anybody. I guess it doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) That's the wonderful thing about bullets is they do the running for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's really funny. I love this guy. We have a couple of Farscape alumni in this. I was kind of curious because like, I'm a huge Farscape fan. Mm-hmm. And he was a couple of weird aliens in Farscape. I think he played a guy named Alum, and then he did a voice for another alien. And then, not to spoil things, but I'm going to do it anyway. In the future, one of the... I want to call them Volvolinis, but they're not Volvolinis. They're Vuvolinis. Yeah. I like um, to say Vuvolini. Vuvolini. Ooh. That yeah. sounds kind of French. The Vuvolinis. Um, so... <laughs> One of the Vuvalinis, the Keeper of the Seeds, Melissa Jaffer, is also a Farscape alum. She played Naranti or Crichton, if you guys watched it. Crichton would call her grandma or granny. And this guy also, like, and granted, it's it's a few years younger, but he also has a pretty attractive IMDb photo for whoever's into that. <laughs> well, now I gotta go check him out. Yeah. Scroll down to later on in this minute and you'll find a link to his IMDb page on the notes there uh, richard carter <laughs> yeah the bullet farmer who has come from the bullet farm as furiosa so helpfully noticed last week he is driving something called the peacemaker and it is a modified how and how ripsaw ev1 extreme vehicle one with a valiant charger body slapped down on top of it if you are interested in seeing this type of vehicle in action in other contexts there is a different build of this same style of vehicle in i think it's the eighth fast and the furious movie that Ludacris gets to drive around Ooh, interesting the other thing i read about this is it's, this vehicle was highly regarded as the most dangerous vehicle on set oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is like that's kind of an amazing distinction actually i was looking at the mad max fandom wiki where mm-hmm. i got most of my information and the story of this thing is Colin Gibson went to the Howe brothers and was like, hey, can you make me a vehicle for this movie? It's got to be tracked and it's got to be fast. And the Howe brothers were like, absolutely, we'll do it for like $250,000. And Gibson was like, um, how about 180? (laughs) (laughs) So they shipped it to Australia, like half built. And when it got there, they had to replace the engine. They had to replace the cooling things. Like tracks kept breaking because they were going over like rocks and dirt and things like that. Like this was not a cheap vehicle by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-mm. There's this uh, great quote. Mark McKinley was a chief mechanic. He was saying, even though I hated the ripsaw, it was sad watching them get crushed and coming out as cubes. <laughs> so apparently the <laughs> thing got destroyed on set. That's pretty sad. It is. What's really cool though is going to the how and how website because you can see all the different types of vehicles that they make and the ripsaw is one of their standout models when it comes to just moving really fast over rough terrain and they've got these vehicles of them just running the ripsaw through its paces 
mm-hmm. here in America. And that's another nice thing about the Peacemaker is that it is technically American made, but it's also like heavily Australian altered to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> right. With all the, the well, I mean, you know, work. the sand in Namibia. Yeah, Namibia. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the terrain was pretty rough on it, too, as I understand it. Cosmetically, the Ripsaw's body is a mid-70s Chrysler variant charger that was stretched and modified to fit over the tank chassis. Because, of course, a high-speed tank is going to be slightly longer than your standard American muscle car. <laughs> and then they used leftover Cessna sections that are bolted up front. And the grill is filled with bullet teeth so like the grill looks like it's jaws just filled with bullets because bullet aesthetic there is a hole in the roof which we see the bullet farmer sitting in he's got his little throne there so he can operate the searchlight and then the driver sits down if you're paused around nine seconds in you get those white metal shield things the driver is sitting down in that spot there and the Visibility is really poor with the ripsaw. You don't really get a lot of peripheral vision when you're driving, but you've got the bullet farmer up top and his two henchmen back there. So at least you've got lookouts letting you know if something is happening. In the pictures that I saw, the driver is like really set inside of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know how that dude is like, because the pictures that I saw, the Valiant wasn't on it yet it was just everything was like opened up they hadn't actually grafted that on so i'm like where are you looking dude like how are you seeing are you seeing where to go here yeah it's definitely a tunnel vision situation for the driver once the body is slapped on there Mm -hmm. like you know for sure if anything is in front of you but i mean if you're about to get sideswiped you really need you really need lookouts yeah but it is a tank so i mean you know (laughs) If you try and sideswipe that, it's going to ruin your day. It is. It is. Yeah, I, I think don't know. it can handle it. Yeah. It looks like it can handle it. It's intimidating. It can just zip out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> As you do with a tank. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is so cool. I just love it. I mean, it just, it, it rolls up as its own character. It's amazing. So worth it. Dudes, so worth the 200K. Awesome. <laughs> and I love how the people in the movie call it the Ripsaw. Mm-hmm. The subtitles say, make way for the Ripsaw. And I'm like, well, wouldn't they call it the Peacemaker? And I'm like, well, you know, these are guys out in the desert. They know it by two names. They're going to use <laughs> at least one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I heard them call out, make way for the Ripsaw, I was imagining some sort of vehicle that is also a tool for breaking through the rocks. Mm. So when I saw this pull up, I'm like, what did the blades come out of that front grill area? I was still mm. trying to figure out why this was called the Ripsaw. Oh, you know what we need to see in a Mad Max movie? You know those giant excavators that are literally the size of an office building? Oh, yes. Like the big giant. earth movers? Yes. We need to see oh, one of those. Totally. Isn't there like... Like in Transformers, isn't there some sort of like weird, I mean, there's like 10 of them now, one of them, you know, with, with Shia LaBeouf, like there was like this strange, like we're sucking dirt into you and everything's getting sucked in and there's like crazy teeth, you know, running in this like circular motion. I think something like that. Yeah. I think it was like one cool. of those like five regular robots combined Voltron style into the giant thing. Because I remember the visual of just massive amounts of dirt being sucked up into a robot. Mm -hmm. And then I think there was also 
a joke that Michael Bay threw in there because he's such a funny guy that there were two <laughs> wrecking balls hanging down between the legs oh, of the Christ. giant robot. Oh, he's uh, so clever. Mm. But I think not enough people went and saw the Mortal Engines that you could do a Mad Max movie with a giant rolling city built on one of those excavator platforms. Hmm. And people wouldn't say, oh, this is just Mortal Engines again. Well, we had a little taste of it earlier in the movie with the excavator welded oh. onto the front of the other thing. Yeah, the buzzard vehicle. The buzzard vehicle, yeah. So we got a little taste of an outlandish vehicle in a larger scale way. Hmm. So as we're getting into the tracking shot going through the canyon, you can really see how most of the space is taken up by those smaller pursuit vehicles. A lot of Citadel vehicles, but also a few Gastown vehicles in the Polecats that have driven up. And really, they're just kind of hanging out at this point. But as we get closer to the rocks, we realize that Joe has abandoned the Giga Horse and is standing at the front of the column, really doing what he does best, which is control the situation, delegate responsibilities, be a commander, which is just what he does. Mm -hmm. Right or wrong, he's good at it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I have to imagine people follow him for a reason, you know, and despite the tyrannical nature of how his water distribution works, there is obviously, he has a compelling management style, obviously, <laughs> that keeps people <laughs> attracted to him and willing to follow him. Mm -hmm. We hear the term abuse of power a lot in our society. Mm -hmm. I think this is like the quintessential abuse of power. He has the skills and the abilities to lead. Mm. He is a commanding speaker and he has led and won in combat. And he has imposed an organization upon this group of people that is kind of working. Mm -hmm. But then he turned it tyrannical and made it into this crazy cult. If he had just led like a normal <laughs> leader with some sort of moral compass... This would still be an organized society. They would still be thriving and alive, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be this insane cult. Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep going back to the comic every week, but <laughs> I mean, it's already too late for that. And I already have plans to reference it later on in pretty sure this episode. But you're saying that would assume that Joe was ever a good guy. Like... Joe was never a good guy, and when people started chanting about him being an immortal figure, I don't think he stopped it at all. Because hmm. he pretty much ran his war party the same way that he does run the Citadel. Like, he was always about brutality, moving quickly, not stopping for any sort of compassionate reason, always moving forward, always taking and absorbing and whatnot. But I also don't think Joe is the kind of guy who would necessarily see the formation of a cult and think, oh, no, this is bad for everybody. We need to stop this right now. Hmm. So you think part of his effective leadership is his lack of morals? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's unfortunate. It is really unfortunate <laughs> for the people of the wasteland because <laughs> this is not the guy you want in charge. Certainly not. Yeah, I think there's a distinction, though, between running a military campaign to take over the Citadel and then managing the Citadel mm -hmm. and how you choose to manage people. And that I find to be curious, because obviously 
a military mind is necessary in this particular context in this setting. But, you know, at the same time, did we need to make this a, and, and this is something I want to say was one of the writers um, who had mentioned in, in some of my research um, had talked about, there's been conversations about the exploitation of the wives and fewer media conversations about the exploitation of the war boys. And I found that to be an interesting commentary because it's true, you have a lot of these kids, you know, Nux included, who's, you know, suffering from industrial disease. We don't really know specifically what that is other than, you know, the two bumps he's named. Um, but that he's, you know, ill. And it's the presumption that there's a lot of them that are really ill. And, you know, they're being sacrificed in this kind of like pseudo with, I mean, it's it's a Valhalla being like the, the Nordic warrior heaven. And... It's a strange thing to take it in this kind of like Adi Da, like religious war cult sort of way, instead of, you know, kind of like what you're saying, Julie, of like, can't we just chill out and grow crops and, you know, just be nice? And, you know, like, I get there, I get there needs to be like a bullet farm and, you know, bless you guys for having that because, you know, we got to defend ourselves. But, you know, why can't we just chill out and enjoy the water and so forth? Why do we need to make a religious cult out of it? I don't want to draw a one to one comparison to the movie White Christmas, but you know, what do you do with a general when he's no longer a general? Some generals go to Vermont and open up a ski lodge. Hmm. Some generals turn themselves into a god king and start using child soldiers that they've brainwashed into believing that suicide means glory in an afterlife. Come see, come saw. Six of one, half dozen of the other. To each his own. Whatever you choose to do with your retirement, you know, you, you want to stay active, you know, you should do that. Go take a yoga class, start a war cult, you know, it's cool. <laughs> so Joe is up there delegating like he does and an Imperator runs up and in tow with this Imperator is Nux. And basically the Imperator is like, hey, this war boy was on the rig and then Nux holds up the fabric that the wives were I guess, trying to tie his hands with. I'm still very unconvinced that they did any sort of effective tying at all. <laughs> but it just goes to show how rare this type of fabric must be, that that's all mm. that Nux needs as justification for his statement, that he was on the war rig. Absolutely. I also appreciate that Nux observed the chain of command and went to an Imperator. He went to his first available superior. That way it could be brought up the chain of command. Wow, that's really thoughtful. I hadn't Ooh. really seen it that way. That's really nice. Yeah, I hadn't <laughs> seen it that way. And that <laughs> helps to explain Slit's experience. Mm. He also had an article of clothing that proved he had intimate knowledge of the rig. And everybody ignored him, just flat out ignored him because he skipped the chain of command. Mm -hmm. He cried out straight to Joe. And you don't do that. I think Joe is willing to listen to the war boys when they're chanting his name and when they're actively praising him. Like, mm. he stood there up on the balcony and he listened to their adoration. And when the chase was first starting, Nux and Slit were driving up along the Giga Horse. They were shouting his name so that they could salute him. Mm -hmm. And it's still up for debate whether or not he actually looked at Nux. The jury is still out on that one, I guess. Hmm. But... Yeah, Joe's not interested in listening to the rabble. If there's important information to be had, he's going to get it from his Imperators. And it's another example of Nux being a good war boy. 
Mm-hmm. Like he knows his place in the grand scheme of things. And so he's going to be appropriate with who he goes to. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I feel like that now that you're mentioning it, I, I really felt like it, him as a character and seeing, cause I, I think that's a really positive quality that you're pointing out. You know, there's some, there's a respect for chain of command and culture there that I, I really didn't see until far later on where uh, he's with um, uh, Riley Keo in the the back of the the war rig and and there's a lot more like sentimentality and and him being a lot more reflective about who he is as a person and you know Valhalla and and having kind of like you know, a personal crisis back there and I I always kind of consider that to be the point where we really see him you know really change as a character but I think you're right it's actually here this is that moment where you really like see him more as a as a person you get more of his character here it's also another good example of the reverence that Nux has for Joe at this point. The fact that, mm. yes, he's being brought before Morton Joe with this valuable piece of evidence, but he's still half bowed the entire time. Mm-hmm. He's never standing up straight. He's got his head down, his shoulders forward, even though he's looking up at Morton Joe, he's never doing so in a manner that's not visually subservient. Yeah, like a king. Mm hmm. Lots of respect there. One other thing I noticed about this moment, kind of separate from Nux's behavior towards Joe and the hierarchy, I noticed that Nux, who earlier was covered in all of the white chalk powder paint, whatever it is, most of that's gone now. Mm. But he is so much paler than the Imperator. So I'm wondering two things. That white substance that they put on, does that also serve as a sunscreen? Because the Imperators don't wear that. So being out in the sun all the time, this is not the only Imperator who is quite tan. Or two, the war boys do not get out in the sun ever. Hmm. Which is debatable. I mean, we've seen them out in the sun, but are they really kept inside until they're needed. I wonder if the Imperators mm. have like a fancy rooftop patio that they get to go hang out on. <laughs> okay, joking aside, they probably do have access to nicer spaces <laughs> that might include sunshine and fresh air. Like an officer's club. Yes. Right, right. You know, I always interpret it as they were very ill. And now that, and, and you know, they're painted up, but... Because they're they're hairless, like the, you don't see any like you know sweet chest hair on the war boys, and I understand that they're they're young, but at the same time, like look, a twenty five year old dude is going to have some level. Like everybody looks like they have alopecia, so I always associate that with the industrial illness, and maybe that there's a maybe that's a part of it that there's some sort of like sunshine resistance. But I, I think there's something fair to say. And, and it comes down the way a little bit later in the movie where they're talking about how the, the sick ones stay home. You, you got, <laughs> you're too sick to do war. I think as slit says in the beginning, mm-hmm. yeah. I think you make a really excellent point though, Julia, that maybe this is just like, what do they call it? Like zinc oxide, the really heavy duty. Sunscreen. Yeah. The stuff that like you see on people's noses and, TV and movies. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I think that's also, I think, a, a fair assessment that maybe that's what that is. Maybe. We have thought before, I can't remember under what context, that the Imperators seem to be the oldest men around. Mm. Oh, in the Citadel, there was an Imperator who had some stubble on his face, and it was yeah. gray. The Prime oh. Imperator. The Prime Imperator. So maybe you get to be an Imperator because you're 
relatively disease-free. I think we've mentioned oh. that before. Yes. It feels familiar. Yes, With our that's production what I'm saying. We have I mean, talked about it before. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we've I talked about it I can never keep it straight. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't see that before, but that totally makes sense that you would have like your, your officers. Now I can't get like officer training school or like officers club out of my head now in that context. But like, I think you're right. That must be, cause that's also what part of this is, is the, the search for healthy young, you know, perfect, healthy young mm-hmm. that Joe has, mm-hmm. you know, his sons being, you know, I don't know, having some sort of like genetic issues. Rictus obviously is on oxygen, you know, I mean, he looks awfully like buff and healthy, but you know, obviously he's not entirely. You know, his other son, who was um, the lookout, obviously also in oxygen. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's there's some, I think, uh, having imperators out and, and uh, managing and, and them being more healthy is probably a more intelligent management style for your people. That makes a lot of sense. See, if Joe wasn't a tyrant, <laughs> he'd be an even better leader. That's really <laughs> smart. It's cruel in a way. Like, oh, you're mm. healthy? Okay, well, I'm going to promote you. Oh, you're not so healthy? Okay, well, then go do my battles for me and right. die gloriously. Right, right. Uh, so but it makes there's sense. still a cruelty there. Yeah, yeah it is. But, but it's it, smart. it also makes sense logistically. Yes. You're expendable. You're not going to be around very long anyway. So here you go. One last thing about this moment with Nux. When he gets told to hop on the Bigfoot, he's going to go mm-hmm. with him. The look on his face. Mm. Oh, he's so happy. He's so excited. And he like bounces off like a little schoolboy to climb on the back of the truck. Best day ever. <laughs> yeah, when he said, oh, what a day, what a lovely day, he had no idea how good of a day it was going to be for him. <laughs> <laughs> like, he has some ups and downs. It's not like every moment of this day is a win in the Nux category, but there are a lot of things that he considers to be pretty awesome that are going to happen to him before the sun goes down. And if I'm not mistaken, after the sun goes down, yeah, he gets to drive the Warwick. Yeah. He does. So yeah. however long this movie takes place over, I think it's like two or, two or three, three days. days. Yeah. Like, you know, there are a lot of cool things that happen to Nux. I mean, he doesn't actually get to walk away from it all, but you know, that's something we don't have to talk about right now. No, we got a while yet. Yeah. For now, he's just happy. Yeah. He is. And we get to stare back through the crowd and see Slit, who is shouting about a boot. <laughs> How he's got the blood bag's boot. And the only thing I can think of is that, A, no one cares about the blood bag because no one even knows that Max is on the war rig. <laughs> the only thing that Slit knows for sure is that he has this boot and... Nux and the blood bag went into the storm. It's just weird that, like, Slit's making such a big deal out of this boot when Slit doesn't have concrete confirmation that the blood bag is even on the war rig. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Well, it's kind of Slit's deal. He doesn't need confirmation. He is hungry for glory. And he will lie, cheat, steal, whatever it takes to get it. So he has this sliver of hope that this boot is going to get him on the Bigfoot. He's going to go for it. It's B intel, though. I mean, you're right. Like, nobody, no one gives a shit about the blood bag. No one cares. Like, you know, because contextually, it's like, it's not the wives. You know, wives are kind of the point here. Yep. So. Perhaps down the road, Joe will wish he had taken Slit along. 
because the blood bag does prove to be an asset that Slit could have informed them on. But as of right now, nobody cares. Nobody knows that Max is such an important part of this. Absolutely. I love the line here that the bullet farmer gives. Mm-hmm. I just like, it totally cracks me up. Cause like, I, I really, I kind of resonate and I know he's, I mean, he's a bad guy, right? He's a bad guy, but I, there's something about this that I just kind of resonate with just like, again, from like a management standpoint of like, here you are, you're a guy, you got, you know, you're your own warlord, you're your own man, you're your own warlord and you get hauled out for this crap. You could have been home having an omelet or something. They haul you all the way out in the middle of nowhere and you're like, oh, Dude, this is for like a family squabble, like mm-hmm. Jesus, like Jesus Christ, like we're all out here doing this. I could have been taking a <laughs> nap, man. And I just really resonate with that because it just feels like if I were a warlord, that's totally what would happen where I get hauled out by like an ally to do some dumb stuff. And then just like, you know, I, I you know, you gotta, you gotta honor your, your agreements and your allyship and whatnot. But I just like, I, I <laughs> And then the look that the uh, the Gastown mayor gives him was just like, yep, bro, I know. Right there I know. with you. I- yeah, it's like every supporting character from the Star Wars movies. Yep. <laughs> All of this over a family squabble. Mm. Okay, real quick before we blow by it. The Bullet Farmer is played by Richard Carter. This is the first time we hear him in the movie. Uh, his top four on IMDb include the Bullet Farmer from Mad Max. He played Herzog in The Great Gatsby. He was Barry, the talking elephant seal in Happy Feet, and he was the federal policeman in 1994's Muriel's Wedding. Richard Carter was born December 11th, 1953 in Sydney. According to his IMDb listing, he started acting on television around the age of 30 and over the course of his career appeared in 70 different projects. Fury Road is Carter's final entry, but it's also the fourth time he's worked with George Miller. He was in Babe, Pig in the City and both Happy Feet movies. Other than that, the internet is woefully devoid of information specifically about Richard Carter. So I'll just have to make up a sweet story about what he's doing right now. Exactly. Cool. He's still around. Yeah, hopefully he's retired. (laughs) Because he's not that old. 1953? Oh, yeah. That's nothing. Mm Mm-mm, no. When we were talking to Mark Sexton back in week one, we were talking about who could Bruce Spence have played in this movie. And Mark mm-hmm. was of the opinion that Bruce Spence could have filled the bullet farmer role. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. I could totally see that because Bruce Spence looks like a crazy dude. Like, <laughs> even like I think he just shot out of the womb, just like looking crazy. Like, and I haven't done any research on this, but I would love to see what like his kindergarten photo looks like. Like if he has that look in his eye, like even at like five or six years old, I'm just saying. <laughs> Mad Max series can always use Bruce Spence somewhere. Come on. Mm. Come on. Uh, Besides, throwing him in a third time would just confuse so many more people that are convinced that he's the same character across the two movies he appeared in. Oh, right. Yeah, I've heard that. But getting back into the universe of the movie, the bullet farmer seems to me to be really disinterested in this whole healthy babies quest that Joe is embarked on, which is interesting because... And I mentioned this earlier in the minute that I was going to come back to this. In the comic, the Bullet Farmer is one of Joe's oldest allies. Like, when Mm. Joe left civilization after the fall, the Bullet Farmer was there with him. And at the time, he was known as Major Kalishnikov. And through growing his war party and finding the people leader, he was there every step of the way. In fact, the Bullet Farmer was one of the guys that helped Joe take the Citadel in the first place. And so it's interesting that Joe's 
arguably oldest friend would be so derisive of Joe's latest personal quest. Hmm. Hmm. He may be one of the only people who have a comfortable enough relationship personally with Joe to feel comfortable making a comment like this. Mm. Right. That's entirely possible, too, that given the longstanding relationship, that that does not come out as a, as a treasonable offense to say. Mm. You know? Yeah. And this comment really kind of made me think about Auntie Entity. Mm. They have the same, I guess, approach to leadership that Auntie, she was so concerned with leading her community, her town now, and making it hers, making herself more powerful, making it work, making it a great place. Mm -hmm. But she never thought about what was going to happen when she was gone. Mm. Who was going to hold it together? Who Mm. was going to follow her as the leader? Mm -hmm. If the bullet farmer doesn't really care about having healthy offspring, what's his plan? Hmm. Doesn't seem to have one. Yeah. Right. The bullet farmer and the people eater may not have god king status like Joe has, Mm -hmm. but they still have king status. Right. And that's nothing to shake a stick at. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's an incredibly important position. I mean, you think about like the British family Mm -hmm. and how much emphasis is placed upon the heir to the throne. It's less important now because politically they're not really running the show anymore, but back before... There was a prime minister and the king or queen really was running the show. That was the most important thing was to have a healthy heir. Yeah, for that succession sensibility. Mm -hmm. And I think succession is definitely a part of that for Joe. But I think also like producing purity and health is such a rarity in this world. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like it's also, I mean, I think he refers to his wives as treasures at one point. And... I think that that's, you know, pretty insightful in that he's trying to produce personal treasures of his own. What do you do when you're a god king? Like, where do you go from there? Hmm. What do you produce that the world can't already give you? Well, if health is very hard to come by, I can see that being the highest commodity, you know? There's also something in this environment, in this world, to produce offspring is probably pretty difficult. To begin with. And then to produce healthy offspring is near impossible. So if he keeps producing offspring that is unviable or unsuitable in some way, that makes him mortal. It makes him Mm. human. That's Mm. That's what everybody else is producing. So to maintain his God status, he needs to produce a perfect child, which is very Christian. Yeah. That Jesus was the son of God and he was a perfect person sent down to earth to continue to lead the Christians. I see a huge parallel there. And if Mm. Joe can't do that, then is he really a god? And that might just be a part of the succession plan in and of itself is that perception of a a messiah and perpetuating that. Mm. Maybe even less so than succession itself is just the perpetuation of the perception of a Morton Joe. Man, talk about big shoes to fill. <laughs> Being the viable heir of a warlord. I mean, mm. I can imagine that Joe's frustration over not having an heir was a big contributing factor to the wives wanting to leave because if he's constantly being frustrated by something that he doesn't have direct control over, he's going to lash out in the only way that he knows to lash out, which is violence. The man lives mm. by violence. So aside from 
all of the terrible things he does to produce heirs, once those heirs don't become viable, it's equally as bad. Mm, Just another reminder that, hey, everybody, Joe is the antagonist. He's the bad guy. You're not supposed to like him (laughs) as an individual. Like, you can like him as a bad guy and say, oh, yeah, he was a really good bad guy. But don't model your life after Joe. Good rule of thumb. A gentle reminder. You're allowed to like antagonists, but don't make them your personal heroes. <laughs> it's a good disclaimer for the show. Yes. Yeah. Think- <laughs> don't become like a Morton Joe, kids. <laughs> yeah. So the last thing we see this minute is the Bigfoot rolling up and over the rocks. It's kind of like one of those old commercials from the 80s and 90s of the wind-up monster trucks, and then they hit the rocks, and then the claws come out, and they just climb up and over them. I think Galoob made one called The Animal that I really like, but they're going their way. And as for us, we will be back on Friday going our own way. We'll be back with Max and Furiosa as they try to outrun the Rock Riders. But those pesky little devils on their dirt bikes, they're quick, nimble, and of course, packing explosives. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 53 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time. <laughs>